Today on the show, we are ending season one with a bang with a full-on interview with sauropod specialist, Dr. Stephen Poropat. There's tons of information about sauropod species from across the globe, plus info on Savannosaurus elitorum, the sauropod Steve named in 2016. Pals in Paleo presents Savannosaurus with Steve Poropat. Let's go back. This is Pals in Paleo, your favorite fossil podcast, where we talk to the experts on ancient organisms and uncover the past. I'm your host, paleontologist, PhD student, and wannabe sauropod expert, Adele Pentland. To find out what's happening with the show, see cool photos of fossils and more, you can follow us on Instagram at Pals in Paleo. Pals and Paleo acknowledges the traditional custodians of the land throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea, and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present, and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. This episode was recorded on Koa Country in Winton, Central Western Queensland, and the holotype and only known specimen of Savannosaurus elitorum was also found on Koa Country. Today's episode is going to be pretty different compared to previous episodes. We're still going to talk about the form, function, and family groupings of a fossil, but I'll be doing it with the help of Dr. Steve Poropat, and I'm bloody excited. Before I had really figured out what the show was going to be like, Steve was happy to chat with me as the first proverbial lemming off the cliff. I'm so lucky to have him as my mentor and supervisor. I literally wouldn't be half the paleontologist I am today without his wisdom and insight. And I'm so excited to finally share some of that with you on today's episode. I've been Steve's student officially since the end of 2017, since I study part-time. But because we've known each other so long, I didn't do a pronoun check at the start of the interview. But Steve uses he, him pronouns. Before we hear from Steve and hear about Savannosaurus, it's random fossil fact time. Consider this the trailer before the lights dim in the theatre and the movie begins. I was really torn on what direction to take today's random fossil fact, since most of the time it's completely out of left field. But I don't know, I think it's sometimes nice to tie it in with the main topic. Since we'll soon be knee-deep in sauropod facts, I decided to stay on theme and want to talk about embryonic sauropod fossils in their eggs. As far as fossils go, these are as rare as hen's teeth. Fossil eggs and nesting sites are known from some spots, but generally speaking, they're very rare. If you've ever accidentally cracked an egg, you can only imagine how difficult it is to bury an egg quickly with sediment without completely destroying it in the process. But it does happen. Even rarer still is the discovery of delicate bones still preserved within that egg, because it means two things. One, that egg was fertilized, and two, that embryo was in a late stage of development, and those tiny bones had actually been reinforced with calcium. I want to zoom in on two papers specifically, both describing tiny sauropod embryos in ovo from the Upper Cretaceous of Patagonia in Argentina. 
These incredible fossils are from types of titanosaurs, which is a group of sauropods made famous by Patagotitan, which is the biggest dinosaur discovered to date. The most recent paper was published in 2020 and authored by Martin Kundrat and colleagues in the scientific journal Current Biology. You might remember it. They described one of the most complete titanosaur embryos to date with a bump on the end of its nose. There were a lot of headlines hyping this find up and saying a baby sauropod had been found with a rhino-like horn. Before I forget, that 2020 paper is published in open access, so anyone can read it and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. The graphical abstract made me laugh out loud. It's so funny. A graphical abstract, by the way, is a graphic with a few words that explains what the gist of the paper is. And there's this beautiful 3D baby sauropod skull, but there's also these unnerving floating googly eyes. Like, I 100% understand why they did it, and it helps, but it's just so goofy looking. Anyway, I'll let you be the judge of that. Like I said, that paper is online and free. They've also got a 3D model of that skull, which is worth checking out. It's gorgeous. Getting back to the actual science of this paper, modern day birds are often born with what's called an egg tooth, or an extra bump on the end of their beak, which they use to hatch. What happens is that the little chick, or I guess in this case, the dinosaur, begins to break the egg from the inside, and they need to do a full 360 in that egg and crack a ring around the egg to then hatch. Now, unfortunately, not all chicks hatch successfully. Sometimes if the humidity isn't right and the egg dries out a bit during development, the embryo can get stuck to the membrane between it and the hard eggshell and they can't complete their 360 spin and they don't make it. For those that do make it, that egg tooth sticks around for a few days but eventually falls off and it's no big deal since their beaks are made out of keratin anyway, which is what our fingernails and our hair is made up of. So it doesn't hurt them. And to be honest, I don't think they realize when the egg tooth falls off. While some dinosaurs had beaks, titanosaurs didn't. So they have a similar solution to the same problem, but they've actually modified the shape of the skull instead of evolving a separate structure. I mentioned earlier that there are two papers on this. There was an earlier paper published in 2007 in the Journal of Vertebrate Paleontology as a short communication by Rodolfo Garcia, who described the same bony bump on the end of the premaxilla in multiple specimens. I just want to highlight both since the paper published by Garcia isn't in open access, but it's still an important contribution and reminder that we stand on the shoulders of giants and our work builds on what others have discovered before us. Speaking of giants, we've heard about dinosaur embryos unhatched and in eggs, but let's talk now about titanosaurs in Australia, specifically a very special sauropod, Savannosaurus elliotorum. This conversation was recorded after a full day on site during a dinosaur dig in August last year. That is how long I've been sitting on this, but Steve never, not once, made a fuss over it. If the audio sounds kind of janky, we were sitting in the work unit, we'd already cracked a couple beers, and the laptop and microphone were perched precariously on the center console sitting between us. Even though I was physically sitting in the driver's seat, honestly, I was just a passenger and along for the ride soaking up as much sauropod information as I could. Also, sorry, not sorry, there's several Simpsons quotes throughout this episode. See if you can spot them all. Uh, that's just how it is when the two of us get talking. 
Now, I know a little bit about sauropods through helping Steve with his research, as well as his now finished master's student, Samantha Rigby, but they both know a lot more about this group than I do. Before we get into the interview, let's talk a bit about what a sauropod dinosaur is. You'll find them next to the green T-Rex emoji. Okay, moving on. No, I'm just kidding. Steve would actually kill me if I didn't go into more detail and do these dinosaurs justice. There are over 300 species of sauropods. I say later on in the interview, over 200, but I double-checked this and it is in fact closer to 300. This group is iconic as it includes the largest land animals to ever exist. I make the distinction of land animals because whales? Whales. I feel like whales have an unfair advantage, almost verging on cheating though, because they're in the water. Can't wait to have that comment come back and bite me in the butt later when I speak to a whale paleontologist, but that's a problem for future Adele. Getting back to sauropods though, while there is a range in size, sauropods are known for being big and they also have a pretty distinct body shape. Long necks, long tails, small heads, big barrel-shaped bodies, and four legs built like columns. Some mix it up a little bit and do funky things with their bodies, like the neck and back of Amargosaurus from the early Cretaceous of Argentina. Others have osteoderms, which are bony plates, more common in ankylosaurs, the small armored dinosaurs and crocodiles. But other than that, sauropods are pretty consistent and pretty recognizable. As in, you're probably not going to confuse them for another type of dinosaur. If you're still unfamiliar with what a sauropod looks like, then I'm, I'm sorry, I've completely failed you, but have a look at the sauropod in the cover art for the podcast. It's gorgeous and was created just for us by Crumpet Clubhouse, specifically the very talented Jenny Chow. I'll put links to their socials in the show notes, but now that we're all on the same page, let's go back in time to August 2022 and talk sauropods with Steve Poropat. Today on the show, we have a really special guest. It's going to be like a really fun, informal chat because I have with me my PhD supervisor, my friend, my mentor, Dr. Stephen Poropat. Hi, how's it going? Yeah, good. I've accosted you. We are sitting in the middle of a car. Well, we're sitting in a car and we're in the middle of a dinosaur dig. Um, <laughs> it's pretty special, though, because we happen to be on Belmont Station and I will get you to talk a little bit about a special sauropod that was found here. But before we get into the form and the function of Savannosaurus eleatorum, I should probably like delve into where you're based, like what your affiliations are and all that good stuff. I'm currently at Curtin, but I have worked at other unis before. I did my PhD at Monash University in Melbourne. I then did a postdoc in Sweden at Uppsala University and had a postdoc back in Melbourne at Swinburne University of Technology as well. Yeah, and throughout this time, I should also mention that we're both research associates with the Australian Age of Dinosaurs. Yes. And that's who is running the dig that we're on at the moment. That's it. Yeah, I've been coming out on these digs since 2011, so 12 years now. Uh, <laughs> feels like a lifetime ago, the first one. And yeah, every dig's been different. Every dig's had its ups and downs. We've been on the up for five, six consecutive years. I can only hope we continue. <laughs> yeah, well, and most digs produce sauropods, which is sort of what I've come to know 
you as the expert in, but in saying that you're obviously supervising me and I work on pterosaurs, you've supervised people working on Cretaceous age crocs and ornithopods and Jake, who's doing theropod stuff now, who I'd love to have on the show as well. Yeah, even someone working on Cretaceous dragonflies and all things. So yeah, I'm just interested in paleontology sort of generally. I just happen to have had a passion for dinosaurs and in particular sauropods and I've had the good fortune and privilege to work on sauropod dinosaurs a lot. Whereas, you know, I know that there are other people who are really passionate about dinosaurs who might have to work on other groups yeah. uh, just because of the lack of available material or people to supervise them or, or whatever. Yeah. So, yeah, a combination of good fortune and opportunity. Pals and Paleo will be right back. This episode is brought to you by Dinosaur Trips. Dinosaur Trips are exactly what they sound like. Each itinerary gets you up close and personal with experts and gives you backstage access into the world of paleontology, visiting museums from across the world, and even getting you onto real-life dinosaur digs. There's a bunch of trips running in 2024. Alberta Badlands and Beyond is back, and so's Badlands Family Adventure. Personally, I'm eyeing off the trip to Arizona and California because I'm dying to see the La Brea tar pits. But then again, I'm also tempted to travel to Patagonia. To learn more about the 2024 trips, you can check out their website, dinosaurtrips.com, and sign up to their newsletter to be the first to find out about the new trips. And you can email Zach on zach at dinosaurtrips.com, and Zach is spelt Z-A-C-H. It's been 66 million years. Why wait any longer? Join Dinosaur Trips on the adventure of a lifetime. So when you say a sauropod, so for people who aren't experts in dinosaurs, we're talking like long neck, long tail, little foot from Land Before Time. Oh, yes. (laughs) Um, What other pop culture references can we weave in? Oh, look, I mean, if you go I mean, for an older generation, you've got Monty Python with the Anne Elk sketch where she's got a theory about the brontosaurus <laughs> where it's thin at one end, much, much thicker in the middle and thin again at the other end. But look, I guess um, they appear in all the Jurassic Park movies in one form or another. They're in Walking with Dinosaurs and Prehistoric Planet. And they're the largest land animals to have walked on the Earth. Like They're probably included in those media, I guess, for that reason. Pretty much, yeah. In some ways, they're the ones that are going to inspire the most awe in any museum display, possibly with the exception of something like T-Rex, the really big theropod dinosaurs. Mm. Yeah, sauropods are just off the scale in terms of how long and tall they are in particular, but also they were the heaviest land animals ever to exist, or at least some of them were. And yeah, I guess because they have been known or their approximate body shape has been known since the 1880s, they really have penetrated the public eye. They are widely known. People think of a dinosaur and they often think of just a generic sauropod, long neck, long tail, as you said, because yeah, they're just iconic. They are not like anything else that's ever existed before or since because yeah, few things got that big and few things extended their necks as far out from their bodies unless they didn't extend their tails so much like elasmosaurs or tanistrophids. They got long necks, but short tails. I mean, elasmosaurs as well, they are in the water. So there's like different physics applying to them and all kinds of that good stuff. Definitely, yes. (laughs) 
So do I like expose you as someone who actually worked on ostracods for a little while or do oh, we not talk about it? No, you can. Um, yeah. Look, I don't have any shame about my crustacean past. <laughs> really? Because it's not listed on your website. Uh, it probably should be. Should be. Although <laughs> the publications are. Look, if it's Dr. Zordberg, you know, he's a decapod, I guess. And Sebastian from Little Mermaid. Like, Yeah, crustaceans are cool. I actually But am- you were that like a dinosaur obsessed kid. I was. Like yeah. my favorite detail that you've revealed was when you brought... What was it? A toy dinosaur to, um, oh my God, I'm blanking on what it's called. Christmas? No, the nativity? Yeah, Yeah, the nativity. nativity. Yeah, look, the dinosaurs wanted to visit Jesus too. Yeah, apparently. (laughs) All the animals were crowded around the manger, so, you know, Patasaurus had to be there as well. Um, (laughs) Look, I just loved dinosaurs when I was a kid. It's what got me into paleontology. It's what got me interested in natural history more broadly. But, yeah, when I was looking for PhDs, I was also thinking sort of longer-term prospects and how you could actually be employed as a paleontologist because I was basically told that vertebrate paleontology, not just dinosaur paleontology, yeah, working on vertebrates at all was a tough gig. and It still um, is. Oh, absolutely it is. And you have to be persistent and sort of willing to put up with a lot of rubbish along the way if you're actually going to be able to get into it. Yeah, um, persistent, but also like best of the best a lot of the time too. Like oh. it is a highly competitive <laughs> field. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. it. It is. I don't count myself among the best at all because I look at what I've done and it's a bit limited compared to paleontologists from my generation because they're doing like bigger data studies and all that sort of stuff. I would though proudly say that, you know, I like doing detailed anatomical work. I like working out how an animal's put together and what makes it similar or different to other closely related animals. So I don't take any shame in having done a lot of that sort of detailed finicky work that maybe a lot of people aren't going to read cover to cover and they're not going to necessarily derive great joy from reading it, but the information's there. And I think that there's real value in descriptive work and, and taxonomic and phylogenetic work and that sort of thing. But yeah, no, no, definitely got my start in ostracods because that was the project available to me. It seemed to be a pathway into being paid as a professional paleontologist because working with microfossils has hydrocarbon exploration applications. So if you work on fossil foraminifera or fossil ostracods or fossil So pollen, we should probably back up. What's what's a 4M? Oh, 4M fossil plankton. So they basically make a test or a shell around themselves. And then when they die, they leave that shell to sink to the bottom of the ocean to the point where today there is actually, it's not a rock yet, but it's on the way. If you go in the deep sea, there's what's called the globigerine Jarena ooze, which mm. is 4M tests. Yeah, so Globigerina this, is yeah. like a, it's a particular genus. It is. Yeah. yeah, okay. So yeah, that's obviously super useful for like oil and gas exploration because yep. I think it's principle of an index fossil. So something that is widespread, but also very unique and diagnostic for a particular time period. Yeah, and um, also particularly with the foraminifera that live in the water column rather than on the bottom of the sea, the planktic foraminifera, they are worldwide. Mm. So you find their remains in rocks anywhere in the world and you can correlate those rocks across continents or across whole ocean basins. So foraminifera have huge application in dating rocks indirectly. And I mean, it's all relative by mm. stratigraphy. So using index fossils because you're not getting absolute ages unless you do some kind of radio isotope dating on those sediments as well. You just basically know, right, if I find globigerina... Yeah, it's like this is relatively older than this. It's not going, this is 96 million years old. Yeah, bring it from casual or technical to back to casual though. There's lingering aspects of the whole relative dating still in vernacular. Tertiary and quaternary. Oh yeah, true. Third and fourth. The Paleozoic used to be the primary, the Mesozoic used to be the secondary. So 
it's still there. It's all relative. Yeah. But yeah. And that's still useful for oil companies because they can drill, they can get a micro paleontologist to look at the samples and then go, righto, we're in such and such a layer. We need to go deeper if we're going to get the reservoir or the, the cap or whatever on the, on the um, oil deposit. But the thing is, once I did the PhD, I was like, mm, I'm done. I don't want to work in the hydrocarbon industry at all. I would much rather actually follow my passion, not spend my, my days looking down a microscope and actually go hunting for fossils, digging for them and working on fossils in museums as well. Yeah. Speaking of digging for fossils, we had a pretty good day today. We did. <laughs> um, it just so happens that, I don't know, it was a bit of a fluke really. So we started opening up a new dinosaur site and there's only so much you can do when you're watching someone else on a machine sort of remove rock layer by rock layer, exposing hopefully where our bones are going to be and where our fossil layer is. I went for a wander trying to find new sites. You also went for a wander. Mm-hmm. Yep. You found the first dinosaur site <laughs> and I was like, damn. Um, and then yeah. I happened to find one as well. Like, well, it wasn't even that far away. Like a couple hundred metres tops. Uh, yeah. Oh, no, it was like 30 metres away. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's not far. Yeah. <laughs> Hard to judge distances out here because it's so flat and there's yeah. no landmarks. But yeah, it was amazing. Yeah, I just saw you going for a wander and thought, no, I'll do the same. <laughs> sure enough, yeah, I'd never found a, uh, a dinosaur site in Queensland before, which was um pretty good feeling, especially when I looked at the bones and thought, well, they don't look like sauropod either. We could actually get something yeah. new here because so many of our sites produce sauropods and so many of them we only find because there are sauropod bits coming to the surface as well. So to find something that might not be is exciting. But obviously, as someone who has worked on sauropods for the past 10 years or so, they're my bread and butter. The more of them we find, it's fine by me. More papers, more work. Yeah, that's it. More Better interesting, cool stuff yeah. that we can do. Yeah. So how about we like talk a little bit about Savannosaurus? So when I was still working at the museum as a tour guide, it was really formative to sort of watch you go through the process of getting ready to name and get the press release ready for Savannosaurus. Um, And it was a big motivator for me to sort of do the same and publish in scientific reports. Mm -hmm. So it's a sauropod, a big long neck dinosaur, Mm -hmm. like Littlefoot from Land Before Time. As I mentioned up at the top, found here on Belmont Station, but that original site was found in 2005? Yeah, 2005, that's right. By David Elliott? Yep. When David found the site, he and uh, the Queensland Museum team had a pretty successful run at the Elliott site, as it was then known. It's since been split into three, but David was out mustering sheep and found a bit of dinosaur bone two ends of what looked like a limb bone to his eyes in any case. And yeah, I took a photo of him, sent an email to the Queensland Museum and said, yeah, I found another dinosaur, ho-hum. And so, of course, it became the ho-hum site. Yeah, another day, another dinosaur. And with those two ends of a limb bone, David thought he had something really exciting. He thought he had a theropod dinosaur initially because... And missing the bit, in the, like the long exactly, bit in the middle. Missing yeah, missing the shaft of the bone. But... Then Judy, his wife, dashed that dream by clicking the two bits together. You should always listen to your wife. Yeah, you should. Well, moral yes. of the story. <laughs> <laughs> can't, can't deny that. But yeah, basically, yeah, she clicked them together and all of a sudden it wasn't a theropod limb bone or another type of dinosaur. It was a sauropod foot bone. One of the few bones from the back foot of a sauropod that had been found in Australia to that point. We've since found a few more, as we can discuss later. But yeah, it's the only part of Wade's back foot that was found other than one of his ankle bones. Huh. Um, but they were at the surface. It's a really nice toe bone though, isn't it? It is, yeah. It's That's pretty, weird. Okay. I think it's because it was just so solid that, you know, when yeah, it came okay. up in concretion, it didn't really fracture too much. Just and boy, half. was there a lot of concretion. There was. I wish I'd been at the digs for Savannosaurus or for Wade, uh, as it was then known. And I should say that the reason that Wade was called Wade is because during the digs, a very famous Queensland paleontologist, Mary Wade, 
She had been a long-time supporter of the Elliott family and helping them identify fossils and that sort of thing, but she passed away at her home while the dig was going on. And so they decided to name the dinosaur from the Ho-Hum site, Wade, in her honour. And yeah, basically, from then on, they just they dug for a couple of weeks, but all they came down to was this huge concretion. So like a big old rock, basically. Exactly, yeah, really, really hard rock. They couldn't get through it with screwdrivers or anything like that, which is great if you don't want people to damage the bones. But they then gypsum had also sadly done that work. So gypsum is a salt that basically forms from evaporation, leaving the salt behind. And this gypsum- A mineral. Gone, yeah. Yeah. C-A-S-O-4. Something like that. Calcium so, sulfate. Uh, chemist, don't yell at me. No. Don't at me, please. <laughs> but yeah, this gypsum had sort of filled in all these cracks that were riddled through this concretion. And so what it meant, though, was that instead of having to remove a single gigantic lump of rock, this could actually be fractured along those gypsum lines. Mm-hmm. And so it could be brought out piece by piece. And if it was done systematically, and if you were there marking with paint pens or whatever on the joining surfaces, you could actually reassemble that concretion pretty easily Mm. and therefore not lose the association of the bones. Unfortunately, the system changed something like halfway through the dig and so many pieces lost their homes. So Mm. there are still a couple hundred pieces of weight, only small ones really, that have never been reattached to their original position. And some bones are missing fragments and you look at them and you're like, where is this bit? Because it should be here because it's such a clean, like angular break. Exactly. And, you know, you think, oh, look, it's in there somewhere. When they eventually finish it, weight will look even better than he does now, uh, or maybe she. I don't know if we should call her a he or she. She's named after a... <laughs> she's named, they. I always say he, but yeah, you could use they. But yeah, with respect to the concretion itself, it was broken up um, along those gypsum lines and they filled 17 pallets with material. Just to give you some sense of scale of the operation. Here, I mean, yeah, was, these are big animals, but that's quite a lot of rock. It was massive. And then it took almost a decade for the Australian Age of Dinosaurs and the volunteer preparators that they train up and then let loose on their fossils. It took them almost a decade to prepare Wade out of his rocky concretion, out of his tomb. And yeah, as a result, the research couldn't really be begun in earnest until about 2014 or 2013 thereabouts. And it was originally going to be led by Dr. Scott Hocknell from Queensland Museum. But at one point, I think it was in 2014, he just had too many other irons in the fire. And either with David's encouragement or just because he thought I needed a project, he offered me lead authorship on that paper. And I jumped at the opportunity. I thought this would be great because by then it had been more or less established that Wade was going to represent a new species. There were enough differences noticeable in the bones that had been prepared to that point to say that it was not the same as Wintonotitan Watsai from Eldersley Station or Diamantinosaurus Matildae also from Eldersley. Yeah, so you were, at that point, were sort of like in prime position because in 2015 you'd published like a long paper re-describing Diamantinosaurus. Yep. Did you do the same for Winter and Titan? I did, yeah. 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 Technically, so, the Diamantinosaurus one, I think, came out in 2014, but it was yeah, printed, it was in, printed 2015, in 2015. So they both came out the same year in paper form anyway. Yeah. But yeah, that meant that I had familiarised myself with the anatomy of both of those dinosaurs, probably more intimately than one should. You know, But then <laughs> you were in prime position to sort of look at Savannosaurus and pick out those differences rather than, I guess, trying to steer the flying machine as you're trying to build it. It meant that I knew exactly what bones were preserved in each animal. I could then compare Wade really solidly and rapidly with each of them and, yeah, easily established that it was a different species from both. Could tell that it was... Sorry. So what was like the 
what obvious features make it different to say some of the other big long neck dinosaurs that we find in Australia and narrowing things down in the Cretaceous in Queensland? Well, one thing was um, we looked at the pelvic girdle, so the hips of Wade, and realised that it was a very wide-bodied animal relative to its overall size and wider than most other sauropod dinosaurs. There are a few from South America that were even more wide-bodied relative to body size, but they actually were quite small animals compared to Wade. Still like 12 metres long or so, but smaller than Wade by some distance. So in terms of, I guess, form, if we had to sort of break it down, is it kind of squat and stocky like a bulldog of a sauropod or a hippopotamus, but it still has that long neck? Like, are we also thinking about how long the limbs are or is it just sort of how the torso is? We're looking at the whole body. So with Wade, unfortunately, we don't have much of the neck or tail. So we have to make inferences just based on the bones we have. But when we talk about his overall body size, we have most of the thoracic vertebrae, so the bones with the torso. So we can at least use that and his forelimb as a, a sort of comparative for overall size and then use that to scale him against other sauropods as well. I guess if I was going to say like how you gauge other sauropods, things like Diplodocus, it's mm-hmm. like a giraffe because it's sort of fairly lightly built, but it's got a very long neck and long tail. It would have been held out more or less horizontally from the body. Mm-hmm. Something like Brachiosaurus is like an elephant, but with a really long neck. So a fatter giraffe. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it's got its legs somewhat out to the side. It's actually sort of built more like a hyena in some ways with the shoulders taller than the, mm-hmm. t- taller yeah. than the um, hind legs or the pelvis. But Titanosaurs, you'd probably say that they were sort of like long-necked rhinos, but Wade is almost more like a long-necked hippo. So squatter. I mean, he's still got pretty long forelimbs at least, but the proportions of them are different to things like Diamantinosaurus. Where and Di- Diamantinosaurus is a titanosaur. It is, yeah. I mean, sadly, when people hear the word titanosaur, they think of probably the ones found in South America, and yeah. sadly, ours aren't quite that big. No, not no. not quite. Well, Australotitan and Aramanga might be pushing them for that sort of size, you know, 70 tons and 30 metres long or thereabouts. Yeah, our dinosaurs are about 16 18, possibly pushing 20 metres. Um, but would that be length? in, like, feet? 20 metres is about 60, 65 feet, I think. So, yeah, 65 Something feet like or that, so. Yeah. yeah, maybe 70. Yeah, that's about the length of ours. We know that Diamantinosaurus probably weighed between 20 and 25 tonnes. Wade was probably similar. But the main differences between Wade and Diamantinosaurus were that Wade was just wider-bodied, much broader pelvis. The sacrum, which are the vertebrae that are fused between the hips, they were similarly broad. So it wasn't that the pelvis had just been crushed downwards and the widening was artificial. It was natural. Natural. Mm. The sacrum fit right between the part of the pelvis, so we could tell it was exactly as it was when it was alive. But the other things were there were some differences in the ankle in particular. There's a bone called the astragalus. Yeah. So in Wade, it's basically a pyramid. But in Diamantinosaurus, it's a sort of small pyramid, then with a long, long sort of shelf yeah. to the side. And it's very different from that of Wade. If we had more of the hind limb of Wade, we'd probably see that it's a bit of a different structure to what we see in Diamantinosaurus. But unfortunately, all we have from the hind limb is the astragalus and that one metatarsal that David found at the surface. That one toe bone, yeah. Yeah. Um, So yeah, we did what we could with Wade. We were able to differentiate. I mean, that's the game of paleontology. We work with the fossils that were given. Yeah, that looked, as Tom Rich says, and I don't know if it was his quote originally, but he loves it. And the best fossil is the one you have. It is a good saying. Yeah, we simply put 
before Age of Dinosaurs kicked into gear, there were, what, seven, eight fossils of sauropods known from Queensland? That's crazy. (laughs) That's so funny to me because in a paper that you published last year, you summarized a lot of the sites that have been found out here and it's like over 50, isn't it? dozens of sites now. It's it's unbelievable. Um, And it's just because, yeah, this museum keeps digging up new sites and finding new fossils and it's growing massively. But, um, yeah, with Wade, once we'd established those differences between it and Diamantinosaurus and Wintonotitan, we were able to say, yeah, okay, it's probably not the same species as its approximate contemporaries and we need to compare it with other sauropods around the world as well, and we did. And we found that it had a combination of unique characters and we were able to then say, this is a brand new species to science, which was amazing. I had always dreamed of naming a dinosaur. I think a lot of people do, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I guess not many people get to achieve that dream. And so even if it never happens again, I'm just stoked that it got to happen once. And so the name that we gave Wade was Savannosaurus Eleatorum. Eleatorum honours the Elliot family because they founded the Australian Aged Dinosaurs Museum. Bob and Harry was still out there digging today on the dig and hopefully will be for years to come because I think so. Without them, those digs just wouldn't happen. They're amazing on the machines and just so diligent in the dig site. And yeah, Savannosaurus, I mean, Saurus obviously means lizard or reptile. I always, it wasn't my choice, the name Savannosaurus, I'll admit that. And I was somewhat against it as well. <laughs> so oh, really? Like, yeah, because the fact of the matter is that Savannah today is grassland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's a grassland now, but back then, exact, like, it yeah, wasn't. There was no grass anywhere in the world. So I'm well, like, you yeah. can't really call it a, a Savannah dinosaur because there was no Savannah for it to occupy. It was in mm-hmm. forest and floodplain. But anyway, the fact of the matter is that Savannosaurus is an easy name to remember, easy name to spell, and easy name to pronounce as well. So it's not going to be like a Pistocilicordia or Futalongosaurus where the general public is going to look at it and just go, yep, go for it. Mm-hmm. I, I can't say that. I can't. I don't want to remember it. Yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so Savannosaurus, nice and easy. Then we um, included Savannosaurus in a phylogenetic analysis, which is basically put it in a computer program, you score it or appraise it for all sorts of different anatomical features, whether or not things are present or absent or how well developed yeah, they are. Yeah, unfortunately, even paleontology, we can't avoid math, even it's, though we yeah. do have computers to do it for oh, us. Oh, so, yes. yeah. You wouldn't want to work out that sort of analysis oh, on your goodness. own. Oh, goodness. used no. to try and... Uh, it was difficult. Um, yeah. So you basically tell a computer what the shape of find things. Find a family tree. Well, all but this find stuff. the path of least resistance <laughs> exactly. and try and find a family tree. And you're describing bone shape using binary, isn't yeah. it? Oh, um, and yeah, the process, I mean, it's called parsimony. And that means being sort of miserly. And so just think of these trees as being Ebenezer Scrooge's route through the data. He's oh. just going to take as little effort as possible and give as little ground as possible, have as few changes as possible. When we did that, we found that Savannosaurus came out right next to Diamantinosaurus. That doesn't really strike me as a big surprise, considering they should be similar in age because we find them in the Winton formation. Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is, they came out next to each other. Winton and Titan was quite removed. So, mm, I mean, that can as, also happen, though. Yeah. Just as we've got chimps and bonobos around today and Homo sapiens, doesn't reflect the ancient diversity of the genus Homo. And we diverged from them something like seven million years ago, or possibly more, if I'm misremembering. Hey, it's Adele. I just checked online and Steve's right. Humans diverged from members of the bonobos and chimpanzees between five to seven million years ago. Also, for anyone who cares, I got the chemical formula for gypsum right. It is CaSO4. My chemistry teacher, Mr. Dwyer, would be so proud. Okay, back to the interview. 
So you can definitely have groups living in the same area from long, long evolutionary connection to one another. Well, I guess today we've got lungfish in Queensland. Our own common ancestors like 300 million plus years in the past. So yeah, I guess with Savannosaurus, it wasn't surprising to see it coming out next to Diamantinosaurus because while we'd identified differences between them, we had also identified many similarities between them as well to the point where it is possible at some point in the future that someone might just say, oh yeah, Savannosaurus is a male or a female Diamantinosaurus. They're just the same genus and species and uh, it shouldn't have been named as a separate animal. I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think so, just because we've touched a little bit on the form of Savannosaurus and it's quite wide-bodied compared to Diamantinosaurus. Yeah. Just to sort of get into the function of that and how they would have shared and coexisted in this temperate forest... Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems that Diamantino was a little bit more agile and could have gone maybe through the trees a little bit more, whereas Savannosaurus probably wasn't able to do that. Yeah, being a bit wider bodied, it might have had a bit more trouble going through dense forests than something like Diamantinosaurus. I mean, at the same time, these animals were probably both equally capable of knocking trees down if they wanted to, too. But I think what it really comes down to is that Savannosaurus was probably better adapted for going through really muddy, mucky terrain. So and there was the a swamp, lot of it yeah, out here based on sort of our fresh. deposits. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of deposits are muddy billabongs, mm-hmm. like full of silt. And yeah, we find a lot of sauropods who potentially walked in and couldn't pull themselves out and perished That's there. That's it. Yeah, the number of sauropod front feet to back feet probably uh, tips us off to that. It's a yeah. super skewed ratio. Yeah, it is. It's, it's it has been very frustrating <laughs> yeah, but it until probably recent years. reflects them getting bogged front first. Mm. And Diamantinosaurus, the original specimen of that, you've got them left and right, front feet right next to each other. They were in the same concretion, like the same big rock, hey? Yeah, and at depth within the side as well, so clearly bogged at some point. Mm, Um, Savannosaurus might have been the same. We only found one front foot complete. The other front foot was almost not there. There was one part of one metacarpal. But yeah, it might have still gotten bogged, even though it seems to have been better adapted for crossing really mucky, muddy terrain than Diamantinosaurus was. So it would have made sense for these sauropods to converge with things like hippos and elephants and be able to cope with those sorts of environmental settings in this area because after the Aramanga Sea receded around 100 million years ago. So big inland sea that yeah. covered definitely a good portion of Queensland. Did it mm-hmm. sort of go into other states well, as in, well? in earlier iterations, yeah, it basically turned Australia into a series of islands at one mm. point in its mm. history. But by the time you get to these dinosaurs in the Winton area, that sea's long gone. Oh, well, it's gone. <laughs> how, how long gone it is depends where you are in the Winton Formation. And that's the other factor that is possibly a bit problematic out here. The Winton Formation at its base is probably around 100 million years old. But at its top, it might be as young as 93 million years old. Like which happened in 7 million years. Exactly. Because Possibly one species evolving into another, perhaps? Indeed. Or species coming in from elsewhere and just colonising new areas, geographic barriers forming and separating populations into... Or even just like climatic differences, because one of the things that was brought up in the Savannasaurus paper is that sauropods really seem to like sort of hanging out near the equator and stuff. Yeah, they like the low latitudes, they didn't like the high latitudes. In fact, like the results that we had from that 2016 paper where we named Savannasaurus... Which I will link in the show notes and you can read because... It's an open access. Yep. That paper, in some ways, didn't even provide as strong evidence for that, I guess, sauropod preference as we did in a follow-up, which was the redescription of Alex, a Diamantinosaurus mm-hmm. specimen with a brain case. 
because we looked at where Savannosaurus sits in the sauropod family tree again, and it and Diamantinosaurus actually came out with another dinosaur called Sarmientosaurus, mm. which is from Argentina, mm. and it's about the same age. Mm. Um, and so what would seem is happening, and this has actually been reinforced by other research that's since been published, I think, by Chiarenza and colleagues, during the time when the sauropods in the Winton Formation were around, which is about 95 to 98 million years ago, Earth was really, really warm. And that probably meant that the tropics, like what we would consider the tropics, are somewhat more extensive than they are. Well, sort of like today. a milder climate. Yeah. We're not having frozen uh, poles or anything like that. It yeah. seems you've yeah. got what's called a sort of flatter latitudinal gradient. So the pole to pole variability in temperature is much lower than it is today, where yeah. we've got freezing poles and mm-hmm. warm equator. So if that was the case, there's no ice at the poles and the temperate zone sort of extends to like Antarctic and Arctic circles, it means the sauropods have got the kind of habitat that they like all the way down through Antarctica. And gave Because them at this time, rate. Antarctica is connecting Australia and South America. It's exactly. part of the big supercontinent Gondwana. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's not so much a land bridge, yeah. it's just like a big it's, old supercontinent. Yep. And the thing is, we know that animals were using it as a passageway between and South plants America as well. And, yes, absolutely. Sorry. No, <laughs> all, all good. Um, they were using it as a passageway between South America and Australia as recently as probably 40 million years ago or thereabouts mm. um, because it's only at around 50 where you get severance between Tasmania and Antarctica and the Drake Passage opens even later between South America and Antarctica. So, yeah, you know, they were marsupials. Yeah, that's you know, true. Between Everyone thinks of them as being like true Aussie icons, yeah. but they didn't they're evolve s- here. Yeah, they're still in South America yeah. and they're even intruded North America, but they were in Antarctica as well. They have to have been to get between the continents and you just imagine them just sitting there freezing <laughs> when, uh, mm. when Antarctica became isolated. But during the dinosaur age, that just wasn't the case. South America and Australia pretty firmly connected to Antarctica for much of the Mesozoic era. South America had a bit more of an intermittent connection, but when it was connected, land animals could just walk across. The polar conditions were right. And sauropods seem to have done that around 95 to 100 million years ago because it was so warm. And these are big animals. They would have been on the move looking for food all the time. Definitely no chance of them like rafting, like getting caught in a no. storm on a piece of wood. That's <laughs> no. definitely not happening for sauropods. Not like iguanas to the Galapagos or no. primates from the west coast of Africa to South America. I think even a baby like one would struggle. It would. Some people have wondered about transporting eggs, but of course you've got to keep them out of the water. But, yeah. Because <laughs> if an egg gets wet, it, it drown. drowns yep. because it needs to breathe yeah. across that eggshell. That's what it's for. Exactly. So yeah, very unlikely that sauropods were crossing oceans unless they were swimming like elephants do today and elephants can, but not yeah, across not, oceans. Not across not known oceans for that. of that magnitude. So, for better or yeah. for worse. So it has to have been a land crossing. And yeah, that seems to be exactly what Savannosaurus, Diamantinosaurus, Sarmientosaurus were doing. And we see it in other groups of dinosaurs living alongside them as well, which is fantastic because the more evidence we can get for a connection between South America and Australia via Antarctica, the better our understanding of what the world was actually like 95 to 100 million years ago when the dinosaurs were living here in Winton. And we're finding these dinosaurs here, but we know they were ranging probably across Australia at that time, probably across New Zealand and across Antarctica, but those rocks are limited in Mm -hmm. those places. So we have to sort of fill in the gaps with what little knowledge we have. We know we're not going to be able to ever fill in the whole story, but we can make inferences based on the evidence we have. Yeah, so getting back to Savannosaurus and Diamantinosaurus, it's really hard to sort of say, based on the fossil record, what a particular animal is eating. But do you think that maybe they're eating at similar points in the canopy, like at similar heights, or could there be a difference as well? I reckon there would have been a difference. 
to have two big herbivorous animals living in the same place at the same time, as far as we know. Again, we could work out that they're quite different in age at some point in the future, but if we assume that they were definitely contemporaries, then Savannosaurus might have been better adapted for cropping plants nearer to water bodies than Diamantinosaurus yeah, was because it's got that sort of wider body build, better able to deal with muddy terrain than Diamantinosaurus, which might have preferred sort of upland areas and less muddy terrain. So it might have preferred plants that are going to grow in forests rather than along the water's edge. And so there probably would have been some kind of partitioning in that regard. But with Savannosaurus, at the present time, we only have one specimen of that animal. And there's no and skull, no teeth. no skull, no teeth. We don't have the whole neck. We don't know how high it was able to actually reach above the ground. Oh, in terms of the like biomechanics that. and exactly. physical constraints. Yep. Yeah. So we but we do know. have a skull. Well, we do have a skull of Diamantinosaurus. <laughs> yeah, am um, I meant to say that though? I well, can't remember. Alex. Oh, Alex, yeah. yeah. And Alex has a brain case. Alex has a tooth. Matilda has a dentary and a tooth. So and we actually have on a recent paper that came out this year, we described some teeth of a sauropod, yeah, potentially Diamantinosaurus. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely... So we actually, in 2021, we named the group that contains Savannosaurus, Diamantinosaurus, and Samientosaurus as the Diamantinosauria because they seem to form a natural group. They always... Cluster together. Yeah. yeah. So these teeth seem to be from a Diamantinosaurian, whether it's Diamantinosaurus or Savannosaurus, we don't know. We might find out because those teeth are actually associated with a skeleton. And from what I've seen in the lab in the last few days, there are more teeth that need to be worked on, including some still in jaw bits. So we're actually going to get a much better idea of what animal we're dealing with there. But my anticipation would be that we might see some subtle differences between Savannosaurus and Diamantinosaurus's skull shapes and dentition because they were probably eating slightly different foods. We are... And this I can say because, you know, this is vague enough, but <laughs> we are definitely going to get a better understanding of Diamantinosaurus's dietary preferences in the future because we have unpublished specimens that fill in a lot of the gaps that we have in our understanding of the anatomy of that animal. Hey, just wanted to interrupt and explain why I was acting so weird before when talking about dinosaur skulls. So as you might have picked up, when we recorded this in August 2022, we were still finishing off a paper on a skull from Diamantinosaurus. Now, that paper came out in April 2023, and the skull is absolutely stunning. I just wanted to clear things up and put that out there. Anyway, enough rambling from me. Let's hear more from Steve. But also some that shine light on what it actually was eating as well, which is pretty exciting. And if we get similar specimens that do the same for Savannosaurus, we might actually be able to really get a good understanding of how these sauropods actually basically divided and conquered because they were doing it throughout their history. In the Upper Jurassic Morrison Formation in the Western United States, you have just this absolute menagerie of sauropods. And again, the Morrison Formation is probably a package of sediment that represents 5 to 10 million years, but there are more than a dozen genera of sauropods in that formation. And to have so many large animals. There are sauropods and like sauropod, or at least sauropodomorphs on every continent, basically. Yeah. Oh, yeah. there are sauropods on every continent. Oh, okay. Yeah, even Antarctica. They were so diverse, so widespread. They went through some times when they went extinct locally in North America and possibly Europe during the Cretaceous, but then they came roaring back at the end. So they were never really in terminal decline yeah. anywhere. Present until the end Cretaceous. Yeah. Right mass extinction and what there's over, you might be able to correct me on this, more than 200 species of sauropods. Yeah, easily. And it, <laughs> probably in what's more called than 100 the, titanosaurs named. So, yeah, I mean, that doesn't surprise me. 
They were incredibly successful animals. They did it all with a brain smaller than my fist. Steve has a normal human-sized fist, (laughs) I should say. Yeah, I don't have a giant hand. (laughs) No, I'm sick of these jokes about my giant hand. (laughs) The first such incident. No, sauropods, remarkable animals. And yeah, we still have so much that we don't understand about them, which we would love to be able to shed some light on. I mean, like Australian fossils. (laughs) With the fossil record and sauropods and stuff, there have been like a lot of misconceptions and there are still misconceptions today. People thinking that they have two brains and that they had to live in water. Yeah, some of these ideas just won't die because, I don't know, they just might sound plausible or sound, I don't know, explain away why sauropods were able to succeed where other animals didn't. But yeah, they only had one brain. Some of them... Brains are fast. (laughs) Even though sometimes before I have my coffee in the morning, it feels like my brain's slow. It's still doing a lot of stuff. Yeah, some people try to calculate how fast sauropod could actually get messages to their tail because they had some super long neurons to be able to actually get messages all the way to the end. But they didn't need any help, simply put. They had this sort of sacral relay center, but it's not thinking. It's just a nerve mass. And many dinosaurs had it. It's not a brain. (laughs) And I hope that that room... Mic drop. Yeah. I guess one thing I would really dislike and think there is an individual who has been for a long time putting books out and doing talks on oh the aquatic dinosaur you know they had to have been buoyed up by water because they're too big to walk and whatever else it's complete hogwash sauropod footprints are formed in terrestrial settings we found them all over the world they didn't need water to just move around but the fact is that savannosaurus might have been quite happy in water doesn't mean that all sauropods were i would hate to see that sort of information misconstrued as supporting that sort of ridiculous idea because most sauropods probably wouldn't really liked water too much one of my pet ideas about sauropods is that one of the reasons they had such long necks is so they could actually reach water while not having to approach the water too closely they could reach out over the mud flat get a drink and and then trundle away without getting their feet wet. I thought it was more like an efficiency thing. I'm going to plant here and then I'm just going to move my big old neck and I'm going to reach as much vegetation as I can because moving my whole body, mm, that's a lot of work. Whereas... If I just move my neck, yeah, it's just, just energy efficient. Yeah. And look, that's almost certainly a better explanation, but I think it's a nice sort of added benefit of having a long neck. You don't need to get all the way down to the water's edge. I mean, you look at giraffes, because of the way they're put together, they actually have to adopt this ridiculous it's stance. It's a very different posture to how they normally are. Yeah. But sauropods didn't have to do that because instead of their neck sort of coming out of the top of their body, or for most of them, brachiosaurs are an exception, but the neck's more or less coming straight out forwards rather than upwards. And so it meant that they could just reach down, bang, heads in the water. I can take a drink without really getting my feet wet. And Savannosaurus and Diamantiosaurus were probably doing exactly that. But Diamantiosaurus was a bit less keen to get its feet wet than Savannosaurus. That's <laughs> um, what it seems. Look, we've still got so much to learn about sauropods in Australia in particular, but sauropods generally are still not terribly well understood in, in some respects. wrapped in a riddle, wrapped in a vest. Well. Like Nelson Muntz. Seldom in a concretion. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, they're on every continent, but so, so rarely do you actually get a complete skeleton of a sauropod. So most sauropods, we have no idea what their heads look like. We have no idea how long their necks were. Basic questions about their anatomy, we just can't answer. And part of it's probably the way that fossils form. Mm. They generally need to be buried pretty rapidly. It's hard to bury big things really quickly. Yeah, so you're not getting a lot of like skin impressions or that exceptional preservation. I'm guessing there's not many fossil tendons, which can happen in other groups. But again, it's hard. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, we're not going to find the beautiful feathered dinosaurs in Lao Ning. You're not going to see sauropods, generally speaking, amongst them. There are a few. There's one that's a really crushed skull, but it's just different preservation Mm. to those wonderful feathered dinosaur fossils because, yeah, they just weren't 
dying in the same way or being buried and fossilized in the same way. At the same time, the fossil record does deliver sauropods regularly because they're so big and relatively obvious. And because they're easy Um, for people to spot. Exactly. And we know that the Winton area will keep delivering the number of sauropod sites that have never been dug that we know about. But we're digging one right now. Exactly. I mean, we could potentially move on to another site. We moved last week from a site, sauropod. Yep. Which was in the same paddock as two other sauropods. Yeah. And, um, yeah. I'm seeing a pattern here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're, they're just everywhere. And it's great, but we often only get bits and pieces of each one. If so a sauropod could, like, crush a small ornithopod, that would be nice. Well, there's a crushed turtle fossil in Germany. So, oh, you yeah. Know, there's, uh, there's definitely sort of, uh, what is it? Oh, I can't remember the word. What, antagonistic? No, no, no. Precedent. If you were talking no. about an illegal setting, like it's precedent for a sauropod to have crushed an ornithopod, except they're a bit more speedy than a turtle, so probably had to put a bit of effort into crushing them. One thing that is a big blank in the sauropod fossil record is Jurassic eggs. There are none. Plenty in the late Cretaceous, not so many in the early Cretaceous, if any, that I can really think of. So we don't really know what their reproductive habits were. We don't really know how sauropods mated. <laughs> Brachiosaurs would have had a hell of a time, probably, unless they had some uh, soft tissues that we don't know about. So Um, when we say sauropod (laughs) egg, the eggs aren't that big, though, are they? No, they're smaller than soccer balls, generally speaking. And like a few of them, rather than just like one or two. They're they're sort of like turtles laying big eggs, so a dozen or two dozen eggs per nest. They're just simple scrapes more often than not. And we're um, assuming like not much parental care, as in... Practically none. Lay the (laughs) eggs. Good luck. More or less, because when you think about it, a sauropod hatching from a soccer ball or smaller sized egg if it's trying to hang around its parents who weigh 20 tons it's more likely to get crushed than cared <laughs> I mean, for yeah, true. Um, so yeah they probably would have had to sort of fend for themselves for a while and having lots of babies just like modern day turtles do you can imagine some of you are going to get eaten mm-hmm. but some of you might survive sauropod parents are basically going you're cut you're cut you're cut oh. well at least evolution and natural selection are but yeah the sauropod parents are just like well probably won't see many of you again but some of you will make it good luck <laughs> and uh yeah I think the term from Archer is spray and pray. Oh, you know, my God. Lots and lots of eggs and hope for the best. Our selection all the way. Our selection being like rapid selection as opposed oh, I to I can't even remember what the K? R's and the K's. Yeah, K's is few, young, lots of care. R's Which is what humans many, do. Yeah. And then R, 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 I think, was rapid. Many, young, little, little if any care. Yeah. Um, and there's a, and then there's a sometime, spectrum. And then sometimes insects else. will just be like, some of you will hatch out and you'll be food for the other ones. Yeah. <laughs> Brutal, huh? The joys of nature. But yeah, look, as far as I other things to do with sauropods are concerned. We don't really know if they had stomach stones. Most sauropod skeletons don't have them, so my inference would be that very few of them actually swallowed stones to help with their digestion. It'd be interesting to see if you could see wear on the teeth from that, but I guess it wouldn't be regular either. Yeah, they're just sort of plucking stones. They're not going to necessarily Mm. wear their teeth much. And yeah, gut contents, never found, at least not published. Hint, hint. (laughs) Watch the space. Yeah, yeah. Coprolites, the only ones that have ever been attributed to sauropods, could be from other dinosaurs. But so fossil them, poop. Yeah, exactly. Direct evidence of exactly what they were eating would be really, really nice. And we might get some of that in the future. But also just there are so many questions still about the evolution of sauropods where certain species actually sit on the tree is really contentious. One of them is actually one that I worked on 
which is called Eucalyptus. And depending on whose view you subscribe to, it could be a late surviving relative of things like Mamenchisaurus, which is a super long-necked dinosaur from China, or it could be a primitive relative of Titanosaurs. And those are very different parts of the sauropod family tree right there. And then Uh, its name, U, means true. Yep. And then Helipus would just be like another group. It means marsh marsh foot. Oh, marsh foot. Yeah. So it was originally called Helipus until that name was realised to be preoccupied. Ah, yeah. So they called it Euhelipus, the true marsh foot. Okay, um, okay. That makes more sense. Yeah. No, that's a Chinese sauropod, recently been dated to the very earliest Cretaceous. It's, it's really interesting because it's coming from a time where we don't actually get that many sauropod fossils there worldwide. I thought there weren't that many dinosaur fossils, but I could yeah, be wrong. Yeah, I think you're right. It's the Berryasian stage of the Cretaceous, the very earliest Cretaceous, very few dinosaur fossils worldwide. And yeah, as a result, it's a great interest. And especially because teeth that are very similar to it come from early Cretaceous rocks all through Asia, but also actually get into Europe as well. So if it's a late surviving uh, relative of Mementisaurus, then it's showing that these animals could actually spread between continents during the early Cretaceous because they're in Africa and the late Jurassic as well. But yeah, who knows? <laughs> we'll work it out one day. We're A lot of work sits. ahead yeah. of you and you've got five years at Curtin at least to do, but, start uh, doing yeah. some of the stuff. That'll be very different working on sauropods sort of part-time and, and doing other stuff the rest of the time. But yeah, I think during that time, I'll definitely get to work on some of the exceptionally preserved sauropod specimens here at Age of Dinosaurs. Yeah. I think that's a good point to leave it here. We are sweltering in this car and it's yep. almost time for dinner <laughs> anyway at the dig. Thank you so much for being the first guest on the podcast. And yeah, if people are interested in sort of keeping up to date with your work, what's the best place to find you? Uh, my research gate page is kept pretty up to date. Same with Google Scholar, but on my website, which is stephenporopat.weebly.com, I maintain a list of my publications, uh, not just my technical ones, but also popular articles that I write for websites or for the Australian Age of Dinosaurs Journal. So, I'll <laughs> chuck it in the show notes as well. But basically, if you just Google his name and sauropods, yeah, you'll, you'll find definitely something. find it. Yeah. If you see any of my papers online that you can't access freely, just drop me an email or put a comment on my website and I'll send you the PDF because I want that research out there and when paleontologists don't make papers in open access it's not because we hate you no. it's because we don't want to pay three or four grand exactly every it's time that we do it so you exorbitant. sort of have to be a bit choosy but yeah most people i've messaged have been super lovely and they get back to you pretty quickly and send mm. you the paper that yeah. you need because at the end of the day we put a lot of effort into writing papers we want people to read them we want people to find them useful and hiding them behind paywalls doesn't really do anyone a service except for the journals so yeah. Yeah, I want to share my research as much as possible. Well, thank you so much for sharing your expertise and your knowledge on Savannosaurus. And we talked about a bunch of other sauropods as well. I might have you back on the show at some point. I mean, if you, I don't know, work on an exceptional sauropod with, (laughs) I don't know, gut contents, then uh, we'll probably have to talk about it later. I suspect we might. Or or one that, you know, preserves parts of the sauropod's anatomy that we don't get often either. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Thank you so much. You are more than welcome. Thanks for having me. Steve, thank you so much for sitting down and talking with me. I always have heaps of fun chatting to him about dinosaurs and any group that I'm not super familiar with. He is an incredible mentor. And yeah, I said it before, but I'll say it again. I am so lucky to have him on my team and get to work with him. Before we wrap up this episode and get into final thank yous, I have a couple follow-ups from our last episode on Hallucigenia. 
In case you missed that one, hallucigenia is a spicy noodle or worm-like creature that's about an inch long with legs, claws, spines, and tentacles. I couldn't find a lot to talk about in terms of pop culture references and kind of just assumed that you couldn't get a hallucigenia plushie, but as it turns out, I was wrong and I couldn't be happier about it. So I got a message from Catherine Ann Jones just a couple hours after the episode dropped, letting me know you can grab Hallucigenia stuffed toys from GageBeasleyShop.com. The mouth of this one kind of reminds me of Pingu, that claymation cartoon penguin, especially when he says, Newt, Newt. Yeah, it's it's pretty cute. I also saw another plushie on eBay and Amazon, which is a little more chunky and it doesn't have its eyes or its mouth, but it's got this like pink and orange tie dye fabric. The colors totally match the vibe of this weird creature, which almost makes up for the fact that it's not scientifically spot on in terms of details. And if you're keen to craft your own hallucigenia, there's a crochet pattern up on Etsy. It's super cute, but unfortunately I can't knit or crochet to save my life. But if that's your jam and you're looking for something a bit more challenging, check out Katya's Yarn Boys on Etsy. Thanks so much for the tip off, Catherine. I really enjoyed getting lost in that rabbit hole and having like 10 tabs open on hallucigenia stuffed toys. Don't be afraid to message me about the show or some facts that need straightening out ever and sending through your feedback too. I genuinely read all your messages, even if it takes me a little while to get back to you. That goes for reviews like this one from Anda on Apple Podcasts. It says, best show ever. And then, I really love this show. And as of the time of me writing this, I just went trilobite hunting in Utah. I didn't find any complete big ones, but I found one about the size of a stud on a Lego brick. I really love the podcast you make and the animals you talk about. Five stars with three exclamation points. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the show and rate and review the podcast. That sounds like such a fun experience. And even though I've never found trilobites before during fieldwork, it's kind of cool that I got to be part of that experience in a weird way. I also loved the description of how itty bitty they were. And I'm sending you lots of good vibes. Hopefully you find some big complete ones next time you go out trilobite hunting. I'd love to know if anyone else has listened to the show while out digging for fossils, or even if you just listen when you're cleaning the house. If you've got five minutes, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or rate us on Spotify and let me know when and where you listen to the show. I'll be posting some paleo art of Savannasaurus eleatorum to the Pals in Paleo Instagram, so definitely check that out. And if you're interested in seeing what that toe bone from Savannasaurus looks like, that famous toe bone, I'll post a photo of me holding it to our Instagram at Pals in Paleo. That photo was taken by none other than my friend and the Pals in Paleo podcast producer, Cesar Pushmaran. I hope I didn't completely butcher that pronunciation, but yeah, I did not take French in school and it shows. Anyway, thanks Caesar for taking that photo and working behind the scenes on yet another episode. If you want to hear from Caesar and learn about living avian dinosaurs, aka birds, he has his own podcast called Death by Birding. Even if you're not into bird watching, but you just like hearing about animals, highly recommend Death by Birding. 
Just be warned, he does swear a bit, so maybe don't listen to it with little kids around. Or do, but just know there will be consequences to your actions. Big thank you to Crumpet Clubhouse and special thanks to Jenny Zhao for our podcast cover art. It's so good. Not only does it have a sauropod, but there's my pterosaur ferret Draco, an insect in amber, fossil footprints, a trilobite. It's everything I ever wanted in a piece of cover art and more. By the way, if you want, you can grab stickers with those designs. The link will be in the show notes, but they're available through my online store, Strange Magic Shop. Something I started before the podcast got going, but it's all legit and powered by Shopify. Big thank you to the Hello Kelly boys for our theme music and all the tunes you've heard on each and every episode. You can listen to more of their music, including their latest album, Sweet Nostalgia, on Spotify, Bandcamp, their website, and wherever else you get music. Special thanks to Francie for being an all-round amazing human being and workshopping the ideas I had for the theme music, but taking them to the next level and creating something amazing just for pals in Paleo. So grateful I stumbled across Hello Kelly. Love all your music. If you're a jaded 30-something-year-old who loved emo and pop rock as a teenager, chances are you'll love Hello Kelly, so get on it. That brings us to the end of the episode and the end of our first season. Thank you so much for listening and supporting the show, hanging out with me and all the incredible guests we've had so far. I think I'm supposed to end this thing with some kind of cliffhanger, but because we mostly talk about dead things, I can't kill any characters off or anything like that. So yeah, sorry, my hands are tied. To find out when the next episode drops, whether it's a bonus episode or the start of season two, you can stay up to date with the show by following us on Instagram at palsinpaleo. I hope this extra long episode was a satisfying season finale. I have had so much fun making these episodes for you. And again, I genuinely hope listening to them feels like hanging out with a friend or two who cannot shut up about ancient life and fossils. Rest assured, you haven't heard the last from me. I cannot wait to bring you more facts on fossils and paleontology. But in the words of the Terminator, I'll be back. I'll be back.